Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. He looked at me and had kind of a smirk on his face. And he said, do you remember me? And I recognized him, but I couldn't remember his name. And I called him by the wrong name. And he's like, no, I'm Monty Clem. Monty Clem was as fine a guy as I've ever met in law enforcement, or as fine a guy as I've ever met in life, for that matter. He had a real calling for law enforcement. This is very humbling and, uh, I guess, job or uh, service that uh, I've been elected to. And uh, it's not something that I take lightly. The last voice you heard was that of Monty Clem, sharing his testimony at church. Monty was a dedicated lawman whose commitment to community service was outweighed only by his commitment to his faith. Monty was a Northwest Oklahoma boy to the bone. He was born September 12, 1953, in Woodward, to Ernst and Ruth Clem. He grew up milking dairy cows on his parents' farm in the area of Sharon, off State Highway 34, 12 miles south of Woodward. Settled on Persimmon Creek after the second land run in 1893, the town was named after a coin toss between two families who owned the site. Monty graduated from Sharon Mutual High School in 1971. He earned his associate's degree in police science from Connor State College in Warner, on the east side of the Sooner State. In college, Monty worked as a part-time dispatcher for the Muskogee Police Department. When he was 19, he dispatched for the Woodward Police Department. In 1974, in the sanctuary of Sharon First Baptist Church, Monty married a lady named Pamela Sue Hagberg. They met in Woodward at a convenience store called Wagabag, where Pam was working. She was on break from West Texas State University and back in her hometown visiting family. He was 5'10 and pretty average built, pretty um, mus- muscular, and um, he always, always had a smile on his face. That's one thing that people tell me they miss about Monty is, uh, he had that smile that was just infectious. Brown eyes, dark skin. Uh, he had a little mole on his cheek that, you know, was always special to me. We still have pictures up, uh, especially whenever he was a, a young cop in Amarillo. He was 21. We've got this picture of him in his patrol or standing in by his patrol car with the biggest smile on his face, and he just is a hunk, a hunk of burning love, you know. Monty and Pam made their first home in Amarillo. He worked as a police officer there. They had a couple of kids, Carrie, their daughter, and a son, Matt. Oh, we lived in Amarillo, got married and lived in Amarillo. And we came back here and, and uh, joined the church. Uh, 
I think in 70, fall of 78. And I still didn't have that peace. You know, I knew that, that I should have. Went forward when I was, uh, when I was 10 years old and uh, didn't make uh, the commitment uh, that it took. Money took a job as an investigator in the district attorney's office. He then worked as a police officer for the Woodward Police Department. Later, he worked as an investigator for a local law firm until 1996, when he joined the Woodward County Sheriff's Office as the undersheriff. I, I believe that um, he was called to uh, be in law enforcement. He was. But it was a calling that, in the end, may have taken his life. K.com and The Oklahoman. I'm Josh Delaney. You're listening to Looking for Logan Tucker, Part 2, Meet Monty Clem. If you committed a crime in northwest Oklahoma, the last person you wanted on your trail was Monty Clem. Around 7 p.m. on July 8, 2002, Monty walked into a small white house on Texas Avenue in Woodward. Logan, a six-year-old boy with blonde hair and blue eyes, had gone missing two weeks earlier. What drove Monty into law enforcement? What would drive him through so many days and nights away from home, away from Pam, looking for Logan? As it turns out, when he was a boy in Sharon, just south of Woodward, where Logan was last seen, Monty experienced some unspeakable evil. His folks told me he was uh, around 12 or 13 at the time. He He wasn't too young. I think he was close to adolescence. He did not talk about it to anybody because whenever he was a, a child, he was kidnapped. And he lived out in the country, grew up in a rural area, and he disappeared. And his folks found his uh, clothes and a baby gun in uh, the rural road where he had gone out, you know, just shooting at birds. And uh, so they looked all over for him and couldn't find him and that night uh, probably pretty late probably around 11 o'clock or so he showed up at his aunt and uncle's house that was about three miles away from where he his clothes were found and I think that that had a profound effect on him uh, because he never would talk about it he never told his folks what happened or anything and so I think that that really made him make up his mind uh, was a deciding factor for him to go into law enforcement. How did those dark memories play into Monty's investigation of Logan's disappearance? We may never know. But he pursued the case with a relentless zeal. Looking into Logan's disappearance, Monty found a pattern of broken relationships in his mother's life. Catherine Rutan was about Five feet six, with chestnut hair, big blue eyes, and a bright smile. She had no problem attracting men. Keeping them was the hard part. Monty noticed another pattern, too. Catherine blamed her problems on Logan and his four-year-old brother, Justin. The boys had two different fathers, and Catherine drifted in and out of relationships. In 1999, she worked at a FedEx station off Front Street in Kansas City. Logan was three years old and still wearing diapers. 
His brother, Justin, was 18 months old. At the FedEx station, Catherine met a man named Paul Mullins. He was a swing driver who worked a lot of double shifts and often got home around 10 o'clock at night. Catherine had just divorced Justin's father. It was her third marriage. She started dating Paul and they moved in together with Justin and Logan. She treated Justin, her younger son, much better than she treated Logan, her older son. She referred to Justin as peanut. Uh, it was a term of endearment that she tended to use. Uh, I don't recall her any using any terms of endearment to Logan, uh, and I do recall her being, I guess the best word I can think of would be meaner to Logan than she was to Justin. She would pay much more attention to Justin than she would to Logan. She stated to me on several occasions that she felt trapped and wanted to know when she would be able to begin enjoying her life. I told her that she would be able to begin enjoying her life once the children were grown and out of the house. I discovered she was still using illegal drugs and I didn't like the way she was treating her children and I realized that moving in with her was a very large mistake. Paul applied for a transfer with FedEx to New Jersey, where he was from originally. He came home one night and Catherine showed him that Logan had multiple bruises on his lower back and his upper thighs. Then she leveled an allegation Paul found impossible to fathom and outrageous and offensive. She looked at me and she said that I had beat him. And I looked at her and I said, that's not possible because I don't beat him. Shortly after that, her mother arrived from Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is, I don't know, a six-hour drive or so from Kansas City, because she stated she called her mother because I had been beating Logan. And I don't recall now whether or not her mother had actually taken the boys with her or not, but that was the actual point when I decided that the relationship was over. Paul moved back east and got married. One day, about three years later, he came home and received in the mail a card from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. We, we got one of those flyers in the mail, and I looked at the flyer, and we looked at them every, every time we get them, and I saw Logan's picture on it, and uh, I called the sheriff's office the next day. In September of 1999, months after Paul left Catherine, she married her fourth husband, Brady Gogler, they lived with Logan and Justin in Brady's trailer in Tallala, Oklahoma, between Tulsa and Kansas. She once told Brady, My boys aren't going to decide who I live with. On February 17, 2001, while he was visiting his parents, Brady's trailer caught fire. Catherine blamed Logan. She said he started the fire in his bedroom by taking a long-reach lighter and imitating what he saw on a Pokemon card that featured a fire-breathing dragon. Brady searched through the remnants of the trailer. He never found the lighter. By August of 2001, they lived in Nawada, up the road from Talala. Catherine and Brady and her two boys lived next to the Randell family. Faye Randell was a wife and a mother of five children. One of their daughters, who was 15 years old at the time, began babysitting Logan and Justin. And we didn't see Catherine outside a lot. Um, but then there was some problems, I, from what I understood later. And Kath, uh, Brady left Catherine. And I started becoming friends with Catherine because I didn't want her to be next door by herself. So I was inviting her over to the house. I wanted to be there to talk to her. I, I understood that she was a very lonely person. 
she came to my house for a while. She came to my house at, at least three times a week. I want to say we were friends, or she came to my house probably about a month, month and a half. It wasn't long before Catherine started to complain about Logan to the Randells. She told them that Logan burned down the trailer in Talala. She had said that she had done some things through the insurance. She never really said exactly what to me, but she had said that she did some things through the insurance claims that was not that was fraudulent and that she was afraid that Brady might find out and she did not want him to find out because she was afraid she would lose him. Apparently there was some trust issues. Faith Aunt Logan was a very hyperactive, very love-starved child. He craved attention from his mother. She could not deal with him. She did not have patience for him. <coughs> she did not want him around her. He was invading her space. She told me that she did not know what she might do to him. She could not stand him. She felt like he was a mistake. Wherever she went, Catherine seemed to draw people into her turmoil. She briefly caused problems between Faye and her husband, Delbert. My husband had made me aware that when I would go into the kitchen that Catherine would make eyes and very flirtatious gestures toward my husband. I believe that only happened for like a week and I actually uh, asked Catherine about it and I, that was when the friendship dissolved. I no longer really wanted to be around her. It wasn't long after Catherine and her fourth husband split when she and her boys moved in with another man. In Nowata, Catherine was picking up Logan and Justin one day at Kid Country Daycare. That's where she met a man named Richard Cody, who had a daughter enrolled there. Catherine said her car wouldn't run. In his late 30s, Richard was a mechanic at the time, so he checked the car and discovered it was out of gas. He went to his house, got a gas can, went to a station, came back to the daycare and put fuel in Catherine's car. To say thank you, she invited him over for dinner. Richard came over and they had dinner and they talked and watched TV with the kids. The next day, they saw each other again at the daycare center. Catherine told Richard she was being evicted from her house. He had a couple of extra bedrooms and invited her to stay a bit at his place. Logan and Justin moved in too. Catherine and Richard's relationship quickly became intimate. Soon after the couple started living together, Richard became concerned about the way Catherine treated her children. We went out driving around the lake called Kester's Cove, around Newgall Lake, and uh, I can't remember exactly what happened, but Logan was sitting there in the back street screaming, you know, said, I hate you, you know, I don't want to be here no more. So she took him and put him behind the vehicle and told me to give, she got back in and said, let's leave. Richard picked up Logan and put him back in the truck. Catherine and Richard's relationship ended one night when they were in bed, and Catherine said something that scared him. As one night I was in there talking, and she said, I, there's a way I, would, I wish there was a way I could kill my kids and get away with it. And it bothered me so much that I got out of bed because I didn't know if she'd do something to my daughter or not. And I went and slept with her in her bed, made sure she was safe. I went to uh, kid country where my daughter went to daycare and told her she was not allowed to pick her up. And I also went and talked to a lady at Women and Children in Crisis and see if I could help get Katie out of the house. 
During that time, uh, I've drifted away. But God is faithful, and He brings us back. As he dug deeper into her life, Monty found that Catherine had become obsessed with getting rid of her children, or at least Logan. In March of 2002, Catherine briefly dated a man named Kevin Cottle, a truck driver and a member of the Oklahoma National Guard's 138th Fighter Wing in Tulsa. They met through a telephone dating service. Catherine and Kevin remained friends by phone, and Catherine would often call Kevin to complain about her life. She called me one time. She's pretty upset, saying that how most people look forward to weekends. They get to spend time with their kids, and she dreaded weekends because she had to spend time with the kids. She didn't like it because she had to spend time with them. On April 27, 2002, Katie was living in Tulsa. Around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, she called a crisis hotline and told them she wanted to hit one of her children. Police were dispatched to her apartment at 61st and Peoria. Catherine told the officers that Logan made her so angry that she wanted to hit him as hard as she could. The officers took Logan and Justin to a place they called The Little House, a Department of Human Services shelter. DHS opened an investigation. The next day, April 28th, Catherine received a response from an ad placed on Yahoo Personals, an internet dating website. His name was Michael Petty, a corporal at William S. Key Correctional Center. Michael also served as fire chief of Fort Supply, a town northwest of Woodward, upstate Highway 412. Michael was also a widower. On Yahoo Personals, Catherine answered a question about whether she had children. Her response was, don't want to have any. She and Petty exchanged emails. During its investigation, the Department of Human Services contacted the Cathcarts. You remember them as Catherine's adoptive parents. They lived in Florida. The Cathcarts declined to take Logan and Justin. DHS returned them to Catherine. As she and Michael continued to exchange emails, Catherine lied and said she wouldn't be getting Logan back. Justin would be coming home, but it would take a few months, she said. Shortly after, Catherine and Michael met for the first time face to face. Their relationship became intimate. It was an early weekend in May of 2002. Fort Supply was having a fish fry. On the way from Tulsa, Catherine got stopped and needed for speeding. She had a suspended license. Michael went and bailed her out. They visited each other a couple of times in Tulsa and Fort Supply. Catherine tried to keep Justin and Logan away from him, but during a visit in Tulsa, Michael finally met the boys. Catherine explained that they had been spending time with someone from a Big Brothers organization. It was another contradiction. But Michael seemed concerned about other issues. Catherine had been pushing him hard about moving in together. It was an arrangement he didn't want. On May 23rd, Michael was on his way to Oklahoma City to pick up his sister so they could visit their mother back in Fort Supply. May 23rd was a special day for Michael. It was his wedding anniversary with his late wife. During the drive to Oklahoma City, he got a call from Catherine. She said she'd been fired from a job and was on her way to Fort Supply. When Michael returned home late that night, he found Catherine at the house of one of his friends. She had Logan and Justin with her. At the end of a long day, with his late wife on his mind, Michael had to deal with Catherine, a young woman looking for love, and her two young sons. 
he let Catherine and the boys stay with him until she could find a place to live. I wasn't ready for a relationship. I, I, I was lonely. I missed my wife, but I wasn't ready for nothing serious. Um, and I came to realize that after you know she got there. She, she wanted a full relationship, and I just I wasn't ready for it yet. On June 10th, about two weeks before Logan went missing, Catherine and the boys moved to Texas Avenue in Woodward to live with Melody Lennington. Melody was a prison guard and a friend of Michael's. She was looking for a roommate and someone to help pay the bills. Michael had suggested they live together. Catherine didn't have a job, so he helped her out with rent and other expenses. Catherine still spent the night with Michael on occasion. One day, Michael woke up looked for his lighter, and it was gone. Catherine found it. She said it was in Logan's shoe. I remember telling me that Logan had burned uh, the house down that she lived in, I believe, and another, another husband had lived in, had burned it down. At 9 in the morning on Wednesday, June 19th, just four days before Logan went missing, Melody found Justin with a match and Logan with two cigarettes. Catherine was sleeping in her bedroom. The police were called to the Texas Avenue house in Woodward. When officers arrived, Catherine asked them to arrest Logan. They told her, please don't arrest six-year-old boys. When Michael found out about the incident, he wanted Catherine to move out of Melody's home. I told her I didn't want it at my house, my mom's house, or anybody else's house that I knew. Fearing she would be homeless again and lose Michael forever, the conversation steeled Catherine's resolve. That night, she called the Cathcarts, her adoptive parents in Florida, and told them she couldn't stay in the house if Logan was there. She then called Child Welfare and scheduled an interview with a mental health professional to determine if Logan needed to be examined. Before attending the interview, Catherine called DHS and told them she wanted to relinquish her parental rights to Logan and Justin. DHS told her they weren't in the child-taking business. Catherine attended the meeting she had set up with Child Welfare. It was Thursday, June 20th, three days before Logan went missing. She met with a woman named Jimmy Fraley, a counselor at the mental health center in Woodward. Part of Fraley's job was to determine if children needed inpatient services in a psychiatric hospital. Catherine spun wild stories about her own childhood and Logan's birth. Uh, She told me that she had been abused physically and sexually by her parents. Uh, She told me a history of her marriages, um, which had not worked out. Um, Told me that she had uh, been to drug rehab at one point after Logan, uh, when Logan was about four months old. She said she had had a very difficult delivery and that he had a twin sister who died at birth. Uh, She said that she had uh, lost oxygen, I think, three different times during that delivery and that this had affected Logan as well. Fraley considered Logan to be a normal little boy, polite even. She agreed to have him tested. It would be an eight to ten day program. For an evaluation, she told Catherine that she could place Logan in Meadow Lake Hospital, a psychiatric hospital for children and adolescents in Enid, Oklahoma, just west of I-35 between Woodward and Tulsa. Meadow Lake Hospital said they might have a spot for Logan on Monday, four days away. Catherine demanded that Logan be placed in Meadow Lake Hospital immediately. 
I only remember her saying that as she was leaving the office. She seemed very upset that I could not get him in the hospital that day. And she said something like, you people never listen to me. He's a child murderer and a house burner, and you won't do anything. She seemed very upset on that. That same day, June 20th, 2002, three days before Logan went missing, Catherine called Regenia Ives, a DHS caseworker. We put in a referral and made it a priority one, and I went out to do an investigation. A priority one is when children might be in danger, and so we went out to do that at that time because she wanted to relinquish her rights. I went to 510 Texas in Woodward, where she was living at at that time. She was afraid that um, her boyfriend at that time might leave her and that she might not have one at that time because Logan was caught with matches at his house. Catherine told Ives that she was going to place Logan at Meadow Lake. Ives recommended to Catherine that she get counseling. Catherine said she would get counseling after her children were gone from the home. After meeting with Catherine and seeing the boys, Ives recommended that Logan be placed with DHS. That day, June 20th, three days before Logan disappeared, she made the recommendation to the assistant district attorney's office in Woodward. The office didn't take action to place Logan. DHS didn't take custody of Logan, but their investigation remained open. On Friday, June 21st, two days before Logan's disappearance, Catherine started telling people that DHS was going to pick up Logan. She also told people that she had found a daycare center for Logan. That weekend, Michael, the latest man to spurn Catherine, attended a motorcycle rally in Sparks, Oklahoma. Sparks is a small town northeast of Oklahoma City. Catherine couldn't go with Michael because she couldn't find a babysitter for Logan and Justin. On Saturday night, just hours before Logan went missing, Melody Lennington was at home. Catherine hadn't moved out yet. She was home too, with Logan and Justin. Melody went to bed around midnight. A few hours later, something woke her up. She looked at the digital clock on the nightstand next to her bed. It was three in the morning. I was woken up by a, a yell, like, and at first I knew it was Logan, and I thought he was having another nightmare. And so I went to sleep. And then a few, it wasn't very long that I got up and went to the bathroom and Katie was still at the computer and I asked her if Logan was okay and she said he was sick and that she put him in the back room. Melody went back to bed and woke up again on that Sunday morning, June 23rd, around 6.30 a.m. Katie was still at the computer. I asked her if Logan was okay, if he was still sick. I was going to get a clean uniform, and I didn't want to go back there and disturb him if he was still asleep. She said, don't worry about it. He's in the basement. Melody's basement was a solid cement space with an old twin mattress and an old cabinet. It was no place for a child, healthy or sick, to sleep at night or anytime. Because I didn't think he should have been down there. While Melody was at work, her daughter, Lacey Lennington, stopped by the house on Texas Avenue. It was around noon. Lacey was a young adult at the time. 
and she regularly dropped by the house to visit her mom. She saw Justin first, and he told her something odd. That Logan would not be home anymore. Lacey saw Catherine playing cards on the computer. She told Lacey that she had just missed DHS. They had taken Logan. About an hour later, Catherine and Justin paid a visit to Evelyn Petty in Fort Supply. She was Michael's mother. Evelyn lived within view of Michael's house. She was working in her garden when Catherine came up and told her that DHS had taken Logan that morning. I made the remark something about it was awful odd that they came and took him on a Sunday instead of a Monday or a weekday. Catherine told Evelyn that she wouldn't be able to see Logan again until he was 18, and she wasn't allowed to write to him. Monty Clem could see another pattern in Catherine's life. She would tell her friends and family that DHS took Logan. She told authorities that her brother, Brian, had taken him. As they talked, Evelyn noticed Catherine's clothes. There was some kind of goopy-looking stuff on the front of her shirt. She said that she had had a candle and spilled it on her. You'll recall from our first podcast that later, when the sheriff's office first visited the Texas Avenue house on the welfare check for Logan, Sergeant Sean Barnett found candle wax droppings in the basement where Catherine said she had placed Logan. On the pillow, uh, the bed, the mattress, and then on the floor just directly below it, it appeared to be uh, uh, some orange waxy substance, possibly from a candle. Uh, as I went through the, the basement itself, um, I, there was, I looked in the uh, five-gallon bucket or whatever size bucket it was. Um, I noticed a wad of masking tape. Uh, I've been over just to kind of look at the contents on that tape. I could see what appeared to be the same type of orange, uh, waxy substance that was on the bed and the floor. As Catherine and Justin followed Evelyn into her home, Evelyn noticed something else. She was scratching her arms and legs. She said her and Justin had been out walking and had been in the brush and stuff, and it made her itch. Catherine and Justin stayed for about an hour. They left around 2 o'clock that Sunday. When Melody got home from work that night, Catherine was at a next-door neighbor's house. She appeared to have been crying. Catherine told Melody that DHS came and got Logan. She said they wouldn't let Logan take his clothes or any of his toys with him. Catherine said Logan was going to be with his natural father. She showed Melody a bruise on her arm. She said that Logan had made the bruise on her arm when, they, when DHS was trying to take him from her. Michael came back from the bike rally that night. He stopped at his friend's house in Woodward, and Catherine came over. She told Michael DHS had taken Logan. It made sense to me. I mean, if he was lighting people's houses on fire and she was trying to get him help, that would make sense. Catherine then asked Michael to come by the house on Texas Avenue in Woodward and talk with her. He went home to Fort Supply and took a shower first. When Michael arrived back in Woodward, Catherine was waiting for him. She was changing, had changed her clothes, dressed up, and like was going out or something. Catherine didn't say another word about Logan to Michael. There were no tears from a mother whose little boy was gone. No worries at all. But soon, Monty would be on her trail. This is very humbling and, uh, I guess, job or a service that uh, I've been elected to. And uh, 
is not something that I take lightly. Looking for Logan Tucker is brought to you by The Oklahoman. Written by Josh Delaney. Produced by Paige Dillard, Dave Morris, and Phil O'Connor. Engineered by Todd Frazier and Greg Singleton. In the next episode of Looking for Logan Tucker, Monty learns more about Catherine's life and her erratic behavior after Logan's disappearance. We also meet the undercover agent who recorded Catherine making shocking admissions. Thank you.